I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hello and welcome. Uh, This is me, Royfield, back. Uh, for another intelligent speech. And uh, with us, we have uh, a man who wears uh, at least two hats. What do I call you today? Uh, do you go by your nom de plume or by your government name? Which one is it? Uh, let's, uh, for the sake of things, let's just uh, call me Claude for right now. Claude's not, not exactly my real name, but I'm a teacher. And so I use this ridiculous nickname my dad made up for me he used to make up just bizarre names and i put this one up on facebook so that my students couldn't track me not that i'm doing anything illicit i just you know you you like to leave some space and for some reason this just kind of stuck among uh i guess people who listen so why not and it's stuck in large part now because you have um, a podcast (laughs) and this is the name that you go by on your podcast yeah yeah um some would call it a podcast some would call it a cry for help but, um... <laughs> well, what exactly do you call what you do? So the podcast is called The Cannonball. As I understand it, you are looking at Harold Bloom's list of the essential uh, tomes in, in Western literature. That's what I think your podcast is about. Or why don't you tell me if I'm missing a beat there? What we're doing, uh, my, my co-host and friend Daniel and I are trying to read all the books in the Western canon. And it's as ambitious and ridiculous as it sounds. But in, in the 90s, I think it was like 96 or 97, uh, Harold Bloom, this Yale literary critic, wrote this gigantic screed, sort of bemoaning the fate of English departments and whatnot. And he came up with this list of the essential works of Western literature. Most people, I, I think right, rightly, kind of dismissed the screed part. I mean, it's it's just a lot of ranting and belly aching and and, you know fussy old manness. But um, what he's got is this gigantic list at the back of here are the essential works. And it's not necessarily that he's being absolutely revanchist in his outlook. Like apparently in his politics, he was pretty leftist. But um, what he's arguing for is a kind of uh, aesthetic approach to literature that sort of gets lost in the professionalization. And so he's got this list that he thinks are the sort of aesthetic greats, the things that, that sort of create an affective response. And he, he, he kind of, I guess, ended his academic career with that. Uh, everything else was sort of like, I mean, it, it was more or less all downhill from the 80s on. But Daniel and I decided, you know, we get along and we're interested in reading this stuff. And we're trying to, you know, get through it and have fun with it. Um, Daniel's a librarian and I'm an academic. I, I have a PhD in 20th and 21st century American poetry, which means that for the next however long until I die or leave academia, I'm going to be um, teaching freshman writing. So I'm never going to get a chance to look at any of the stuff that I really love to read. 
And this is a chance to sort of talk to a friend of mine about, you know, stuff that's really fascinating or interesting that we'd never be able to to address otherwise. It's it's literary appreciation. It's personal monologues thrown in there. It's background in history and some sort of like lit crit type stuff. But I think at the end of the day, what we're trying to take a look at is, you know, what is our effective response to this? Like what what is our emotional or aesthetic, you know, reaction to all of this stuff that usually, you know, you have to stroke your beard and take a look at, you know, 17 people are dead on stage and you have to say, well, I really like the way they use the word this repeatedly in the play. <laughs> right. Bloom did this list when? Was it in the 80s when he put together the list? 90, I think it was 96. Okay. He, he begins, yeah, he begins with, um, I think, the, the the Hebrew Bible and ends with Tony Kushner, I think is the most recent one. Okay. So, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Let's just, so that's 25 years ago. Yeah. How, how much of the list just in 25 years do you think, before we go into what constitutes the list, the canon, how much uh-huh. of it do you think, uh, he's put that person in? They're a little bit kind of questionable. Uh, he's put that book in. <laughs> I don't know about that. You know, how much of our tastes change in terms of literary criticism just in those 25 years? Oh, um, everything. It, it's always changing. And that's the thing. In the 90s in academia, there was this whole canon wars. Like what, what Bloom was, was responding to were changes in the way that literature was being addressed and really sort of changes in what could be, I guess, an object of academic study, right? So now we have this stuff called cultural ther- uh, cultural studies, where, where you can take the same kinds of literary theory and apply it to pop cultural material. And, I mean, people have been doing that for 20 years or 30 years. It's, it's a, a different kind of ballgame. So what you're doing is shifting what gets taken seriously as cultural material or shifting sort of, well, yeah, I guess I, I would say it that way, shifting what you take seriously as cultural material. So some stuff gets let in, some stuff gets let out. Um, a lot of stuff that was being introduced in the 90s, unfortunately, that he's reacting to was non-Western, non-white stuff, right? So I don't think he was necessarily a racist, but he gets kind of tarred with that epithet because of his resistance to so-called non-canonical works. Is this making sense? Mm. Um, Some of that stuff that, you know, he was resistant to now is canonical, right? But when you get down to it... Give us us an example of that. Um, um, He would... Let's see. (sighs) Now that you put me on the spot, I can't think of one. He would be resistant to... um, Okay, I took this great course in grad school on multi-ethnic literature, which was kind of actually dated at the time that I took it because the professor was trying to take a look at um, points of contact between non-white literature in America. And she had some compelling points, but you could also sort of lump that under certain kinds of cultural changes that were going on in America at the same time. So it sort of dovetails with a lot of other stuff, and it also can reduce 
certain kinds of experiences to not reduce them. It can take very specific experiences and try to make them universal. Right. Mm. But he would have been sort of resistant to, to some of those gestures. I, now that you put me on the spot, I can't think of particular works that he denigrated. I know he didn't like Harry Potter and I know he didn't like Stephen King. Um, <laughs> he didn't like Maya Angelou. Uh, but he wasn't necessarily hostile to African-American literature. So there are things that show up in the canon that he thinks are canonical due to affective response, right? But then affective response or aesthetic response is also highly political in and of itself. And that's kind of like a whole other conversation. One of the ways that women... And non-white writers were kept out of the canon when canons, when academic canons were being formed in the early 20th century. Well, I, I guess late 19th, early 20th century, which is when English became a field of study. Aesthetics was one of the, the claims that was made to keep certain people out, right? I can give you a more concrete example of this. Uh, in, in the fifties and sixties, sorry, it would have been later It's sixties and seventies, Adrian Rich, the, the American poet and, and feminist critic and essayist and activist, I don't think she exactly inaugurated, but she helped sort of push this recovery project and series of recovery projects that really hit their stride in the nineties where, you know, she grew up thinking there were no women poets except Emily Dickinson. And the truth is, if you go back to the 19th century, there were American women poets all over the place. There were best-selling American women poets. There were best-selling African-American women poets. Um, what happened was they got obscured because the, the late 19th and early 20th century wanted to focus on quote-unquote aesthetics to the detriment of social or political concerns. And I mean, give us, uh, Claude, give us an idea of some of those uh, aesthetics because you, you're painting this kind of vivid picture. Yeah. Let, let, let's just dive into, you know, one or two of those aesthetics, which were, exclu you know, obscuring oh, a, a wider picture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, all right, I'll, I'll give you a picture. When I was in, in grad school, I, I did this really cool project. Um, we were looking at how English was taught in the late 19th century at Harvard. Uh, I didn't go to Harvard, but the archives at Harvard are open to the public. So if you ever want to just go hang out at the archives at Harvard and you know what you're looking for, you can, you can have some fun. Um, my, my professor was interested in how... English was being taught when it was first being taught as a subject. We tracked down, they digitized a lot of their archives <laughs> and we tracked exam to become a bachelor of arts in English at Harvard for the first time in, in ever. And do you know what the exam question was? I absolutely have no idea. Are you so. ready? Okay. What would you guess it was? Any uh, ideas? I, I, I Claude, I have utterly zero. Okay. <laughs> this, this is great. <clears throat> you can go find it now. Mm -hmm. It was an exam that you, you had, I think it was three hours to write a five page response to this prompt. Describe Hamlet as a gentleman. Oh, wow. Right, I have, <laughs> I have no idea how to do that, but that tells you something that they were using literature for. 
Um, in the late 19th century, Harvard was essentially uh, a, a sort of finishing school for the wealthy. And it was less about, you know, in-depth analysis, more about using the works as a kind of, I, I guess, aristocratic guide to life. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And, and isn't that kind of one of the criticisms in the mid to late 20th century of uh, criticisms of literature and specifically, let's say, Bloom or people around him that fundamentally, um, not that they use that kind of crude example, but they would say, let's uh, put, uh, let's look at a certain classic work from a feminist uh, perspective now, or let's mm -hmm. look at it from a, uh, a Marxist perspective. And mm -hmm. you could, you know, and this whole work gets, um, not reduced, not even elevated, but the, the, specifically the characters and the social setting is lost and it becomes something else completely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's accurate. Like, well, it depends on what you want to do with it. Like what it, you can often find sort of this critique. You, you can only teach, but so much and students need to know the classics or something like that. But if you're, if you're good at what you do, you can do both at the same time, right? As a teacher, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's important to have a lens, right? But you also need to keep historical context in, in perspective. Like, I don't know. I, I guess I'm sort of like a magpie when it comes to academia. I, I don't think you necessarily need to do one thing or the other. You can take a couple approaches at once, but sometimes the material itself is going to demand a particular kind of approach. Like, um, <laughs> all right, this is really sort of wild and rambling in general and abstract. Um, when I was an undergrad, I took a class with uh, Christopher Ricks, who um, he's he's a literary critic. He did the definitive, you know, annotated T.S. Eliot. He's he's a not just a literary critic, but an editor as well. And he taught for years uh, this literary uh, editing institute. And I think it's sort of like um, under attack now at the university or something like that. But he he had this class on literary editing that was like a trial run for starting the institute. And literary editing has a lot to do with looking at the text, looking at the the generation of the text, looking at what went into the making of it and then trying to figure out how to present it um, in a way that honors the text itself. I, I sort of took that approach into teaching and reading. Sometimes the, the historical production of a particular work will require doing certain to it in order to make it make sense. Like if you're editing... Shakespeare, right? What we have are editions of Shakespeare texts that were written or, or that were published after he was already dead, along with sort of scripts that were cobbled together, sort of like working scripts that were cobbled together. So if you're going to make uh, a reader's edition of Lear in the 20th century, you got to work with this thing that came out, which is very different from this one that was published, which is very different from these scripts and you cobble them together to make a kind of readable, almost Frankenstein monster version of Lear. 
but it tries to honor each of the pieces that went into it, right? Now, if you're working on um, something like a novel by Samuel Beckett, you've got the typescripts, and you can look right at them, and Beckett was extraordinarily specific about what each word meant and why each word was there and what each piece of punctuation did. And his corrections are, are judicious, let's put them that way. So you know exactly how to edit that thing. Each different work will, will require a different sort of way of producing it. And, and I think certain works open themselves up to different kinds of means of interpretation. So, you know, something like Ulysses opens itself up to multiple versions of interpretation. Like you can get, I mean, a, a Freudian analysis of Ulysses is a little superfluous because, you know, Joyce already knew as Freud. But a post-colonial analysis can open up avenues of exploration that are, are really kind of new and interesting and shine some light on Irishness in Joyce and what that actually mm. meant. Does that make sense? No, no, well, it, it, it it absolutely does, and and and, yeah. and it kind of, you know, obviously, um, all literature, let alone great literature, is constantly um, reimagined. You know, its significance. Yeah. You know, through the lens of the society. Um, at any specific time and then also there is a different component which is um is the reader male or female or oh, you know, etc etc et but what we need to do i think what we need to do is not go through <laughs> the whole canon Claude, Please, because no. because that would be uh, somewhat of a, a lengthy and exhaustive uh, task but maybe number one how many books does Bloom say that this is the canon of Western literature? Give us that figure, right. and then maybe let's go through some of the selected highlights. All right, so, so the thing about the list is he disowned it almost as soon as it was out. Um, the, what he did was set down, how many was it? It was, I think, about um, 26 different authors in about 23 different chapters, Mm -hmm. that represent various Western nations at various times. And he maps this all onto this weird theoretical idea drawn from, I think it's Vico, the Renaissance humanist who had this idea about how history operates. And if you really want to get into the weeds, you can do that. So the main ones are Shakespeare, Dante, Chaucer, Cervantes, Montaigne, Moliere, Milton... Samuel Johnson, the, the literary critic, Goethe, Wordsworth, Austin, Whitman, Dickinson, Charles Dickens, Eliot, that's George Eliot, not T.S. Eliot, uh, Tolstoy, Ibsen, Freud, Proust, Joyce, Wolf, Kafka, Borges, Neruda, the Portuguese poet, Fernando Pessoa, and then he ends with Samuel Beckett. Um, now there's that, and then what he has at the end is like this appendix of thousands. And he tries to represent different time periods and different nationalities. And there's some non-Western stuff in there that he thinks or seems to suggest has had some kind of influence on a lot of Western thinking. So like the Bhagavad Gita is in there. Mm -hmm. And so if you know your Emerson and you know your Transcendentalists, you can see why he would have that in there because the American transcendentalists were actually kind of big on their Sanskrit texts. 
Um, but but be that as it may, it's sort of like those 26 authors are kind of the backbone of the whole thing that he thinks are the definitive authors. And then he's got all these other sort of thousands of things running through at the same time. All right. Right. So um, by no way, shape or form, it was Bloom the first uh, person to say, right, I'm going to put together a list, the list that you <laughs> no. need uh, to um, have read to be a fully formed um, adult in, in the Western world. But let, let's let's try and go back to um, and let's dig deep. Um, there used to be the great tour back right. in the 18th, 19th century. And you had to go and visit Rome, Athens, Venice, etc. Um, how much of this is just a modern version of that? <laughs> right. It's just a case of you have to do this. So we can go out into not necessarily polite society, but let's say in elevated literary society and say, well, you know, over cocktails or let's right. say over some, you know, faux intellectual uh, debate, you know, <laughs> I, I, I know my Proust and, I, and you know, and yeah. you just come out with the line, which, you know, Bloom says, well, this is, you know, the pinnacle of, of what Proust was trying to say or Beckett or, or whatever. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. That's how it was taken. And that's how a lot of these things are taken. That wasn't really his intention. Mm -hmm. He, he doesn't think this is a lifelong learning program in any kind of here, are the, the sort of here's how I show myself or here's how I grow as a human being. He, he is absolutely resistant to any kind of, um, I guess, social version of the aesthetic for him. Um, the aesthetic is, is really kind of like this internal, I mean, almost narcissistic thing, but it's drawn, I think from a kind of, Nietzschean, Emersonian, and Freudian reading of, I guess, this, this radical internal self. And so th this is where I think he's, he's really kind of different from some of the caricatures that are made of this kind of use of literature. He really does believe or, or seemed to believe that deep down you've got this like internal self that is ultimately resistant to external pressures. It's that kind of deep down psyche, right? The, the, the deep down real you that's there somewhere. Um, and, and he aligns it with Coptic Gnosticism. Let, let's not go down that route because it's a whole other thing. So he doesn't even think, he doesn't, I mean, he literally does because he was that well read. Um, but he doesn't, he didn't seem to think that there was any kind of social gain to be made of any of this. And he doesn't think that you should read for that. He thinks that you should read for, for your own development of your internal self in opposition to any kind of like social identity or anything like that. And that's why he was so resistant to those other kinds of lenses for reading that we were talking about. Like he was very resistant to a feminist lens because he thinks that that is <clears throat> reading for a social purpose. And he, he thinks you know, not necessarily in a malevolent way that reading and aesthetic experience is antisocial. It's, it's in opposition to the social. It's something deep down inside of you. Does, does that answer your question by not answering your question? 
it, it, it does. It does in a long-winded roundabout way. All right. So, <laughs> welcome to my world. <laughs> we we are um, here uh, talking to Claude Myron Guza who has um, a fantastic podcast, I think, called The Cannonball. And uh, he's here joining me on Intelligent Speech. Um, I'm going to talk, because I, I really admit, this is not my sweet spot. What, what was the first canon? And I don't mean Bloom's canon. What's the first canon that we can discern uh, from, from history? I'm, I'm presuming that Virgil must have said, oh, you need to read, <laughs> you know. Okay, what... what... What I always think of, and, and this goes back to the canon words, I, I have no idea what an original canon would have been, but this gets back to something that you were sort of touching on, is that, all right, in the 90s there were these canon, gets included, what doesn't get included, what's um, exclusionary in a negative sense, what's um, too far or not worthy of academic study, and... Um, that, that professor of mine who took us to Harvard, he, he sort of began his projects, you know, very, very skeptical of the whole idea of a canon war. His his real insight was that once it's allowed in to Claude, Claude. academia, a, a, hang a, a, on, Claude. hang on, this is going to oh, Okay, all right, okay. Once it's allowed in, it's already part of the canon, and he was examining what a canon is. It's a standard, Right. A canon is a standard list. And this gets back to what you were talking about. Every culture, every moment is going to have its standard list of these are the things. But it's always a standard list of these are the things to do X with. All right. So if we're going, I, I think part of the problem is if we're going back to the ancients, let's call them, mm -hmm. um, the standard is going to be whatever's around, right? Um, but you can look at different kinds of canonization. I mean, the, the, the moment of canonization that, you know, maybe sort of, or, or one moment of canonization that is extremely significant would be the council to determine which books of the Bible are the canon, right? So that's one moment of canonization, one moment of standardization. And why was that done? When was it done? What is the context for doing that? Well, it's done to try to keep a coherent organization together. Does that make sense? So I don't think there is a really sort of originary canon. It depends on what's around and what you do, want to do with it. Um, I, I think these things are always in flux. I, I don't think there's ever been a standard of a standard. Bloom's argument is that it's always up to great writers to determine what the canon is because they're always – he's got this crazy idea about um, anxiety of influence that was sort of like his major idea. But great writers, he says, are always drawing from other writers. And so the writers themselves are going to be determining the canon. It's not up for academia to decide. So the interaction between texts is what matters for him. Hmm. Um, but it gets back to what do you want to do with this thing? You know, what can you but, do? But, what do you but, want to do? But other than just wanting to put out a podcast, which is about <laughs> literary criticism, <laughs> what did you want to do with Bloom's thing? Um, I, I wanted to, I, in all honesty, Daniel and I don't care about Bloom. <laughs> um, it was a neat handle for the bundle. Mm -hmm. It's it's a way of looking at works that... Um, like I said, that that I'm never going to get a chance to teach or discuss or research. 
and I can do some preliminary stuff and have a good conversation with a friend of mine uh, about this stuff. Um, that's really all it is, is it's a neat schema. Um, there, there are some things in there that are just atrocious to get through, but we can have a fun conversation about it. All right. So, so let, let's, let's look at who in the 25 years of the canon, you think, mm. you know what, they shouldn't be on there. Not necessarily that they're problematic because the mores of the times have changed, oh, you know, right, right. they were sexist, racist, whatever. Let, let's put the isms just to one side. It's just you, Claude, mm. don't like don't think they deserve their place. Who are we talking about? Um, now we're getting into personal animus. Yeah, absolutely. I I, one of my areas of expertise is modernist British novel, and I could dissertate for days on Virginia Woolf, but damn if I hate reading her. Um, and, and that's... <laughs> that's enough to get me kicked out of many polite conversations, but um, she's just grating to me. I I hate Emerson. Uh, Every time I I try to read Emerson, um, I just throw the book against the wall because he just gets on my last nerve. Um, Let's see, who else do do I despise in the canon? It could go on and on and on. Uh, Let's see. Um... Oh, I, I'm scrolling through now. I'm looking through who's uh, in just, there. It's... Just, just what, whilst you're thinking, so Rolf Waldo Emerson, yeah, right, the the middle of the 19th century is kind of like a high point for poetry, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Really, right? Mm-hmm. So, what is it about about Emerson that you despise? It, I, I, I must admit, I'm not really somebody. I, yeah, flowery language for me, it's kind of lost. <laughs> And that kind of discursive way of discussing things and uh, and talking about very simple con, uh, concepts and blowing them a thousand miles high the way that the 19th century post used to do turns me cold, right? Uh, but, but I know nothing, sir, about literature, right? Okay. You're, you're the guy with, with, with the big-ass podcast, so you tell me... <laughs> You know, intellectually, the reason why Emerson uh, just turns you cold. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's not even like the poems are are, are kind of stilted. If if you ever go to read his poetry, mm-hmm. it's you, you can see what he's doing, but it's it's kind of stilted. He can't quite live up to his own project, but it's the essays that he's most known for, and and they just irk me to the nth degree because he takes himself so seriously. Uh, he's he's often incoherent and rambly. And his, um, I, I guess there's, there's too much that I see that, that really does strike me as narcissistic, as, as antisocial in a really hostile and negative way. And I think this just has a lot to do with the contemporary state of American politics. But the older I get and the further, uh, the century wears on, um, the more hateful to me strikes uh, Emerson. But I love his buddy Thoreau. Like, uh, Thoreau gets a bad rap, but uh, Thoreau is funny. And Thoreau is extraordinarily ironic about his own project and ironic about Emerson. So it's it's kind of funny to see how, you know, your own particular taste can sometimes... Um, clash against uh you know i guess the accepted norms to get back to wolf what what i really don't like about wolf is is a kind of classism like i think she'd hate a guy like me because honestly i'm not upper car uh uh haute bourgeois enough 
right? And there's this way that she's, you know, the she her her critique of the patriarchy is dead on. I absolutely adore it. And her critique of a particular kind of patriarchal thinking, I think, is is wonderful. And I love to talk about it. But um her classism just irks me and it's all over her writing. It's it's <laughs> It's just something that that turns me off. But if we're talking about effective response, I mean, you get down to to some kind of weird. Imp- this Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Penetrable core where you try to to articulate what it is that you like or dislike. And, and it can really get personal. You know, taste, I think, really is personal. Talking about taste, taste being personal, I'm going to give you carte blanche to delete three people from the canon. You've given us two. You've got to give us another one. But, 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 Claude, you have to replace them uh-huh. with another three. All right. Bear in mind that, you know, one of the criticisms of Bloom's work, it's full of, you know, white man's burden, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So mm-hmm. you need to diversify this, but in a way which intellectually um, still holds rigor. Right. So mm-hmm. 25 years of this canon being a thing of which people have thrown bricks at, people have um, held up in a highlight, etc., etc. Go. Who, who are the three individuals which you, uh, Claude Marangus, are going to add to this list to give it some contemporary heft in 2021? Oh, yeah. All right. I throw in Carl Phillips immediately. Um, Phillips is an American poet. He has been writing since, I guess, the mid-90s, early to mid-90s. And he's just exquisite. Like, he's got some of the best love poems out there. Um, he's, uh, uh, he's gay. And I guess sort of kind of came out, uh, in the middle of the AIDS crisis. So there are several of his books which are really, um, they're extraordinary books of elegies. Mm-hmm. But in the past 10 or 15 years, he's really become just an exquisite love poet. Just the really articulating the desire in desire to truly connect with another person and yet always recognizing certain kinds of pragmatic practical limitations right we're all human but we're all individual and we want so badly to be connected to each other and then there are these these things that just get in the way just the fact that we're each individuals um he's he's extraordinary so phillips i think is easy in um Frank Bedart is another poet who uh, I think Bloom ignored or just looked down on, but Bedart, uh, over time, has really come to articulate sort of an idea of fate for the 21st century that I think is extraordinarily compelling. It still tries to work in some kind of idea of capacity to act 
at the same time as acknowledging certain um, certain structures that are always going to be in play over the course of your lifetime. I mean, even if that is just the historical era into which you were born, right? Uh, I think a lot of American poets try to resist the idea that there are any limitations, and Bedart comes right back screaming in. Um, it's it's really astounding stuff. And who's a third? I'm trying to think who's on my bookshelf right now that is unaccounted for. Um, damn it, Roy Field. I'm trying to blank. Well, you know what? <laughs> you hit uh, me with a tough one. You've come up with two. You had two poets here. Yeah. No essayists, no out-and-out philosophers, no political thinkers. Um, I don't know if the two writers I got another that one. you had. Okay. Great. I got another one. Go um, <clears throat> I just read this book for uh, a friend of mine recommended it to me, uh, Mariana Enriquez. Uh, mm-hmm. She's young, so she might do some crazy stuff in the long run. Who knows if this will last? But um, she's uh, an Argentinian writer who writes horror, and it it manages to be literary horror. And yet she's using the context of, you know, the last 20, 30 years of Argentinian politics as kind of like the background. Mm-hmm. And she, she does it in a way that's not magical realist, uh, which I think is, is to her credit. Um, really fascinating stuff. Uh, my friend Lawrence got me to read it for, uh, um, the, for on our podcast network, the Agora network, you know, we did agoraphobia and I wanted to come up with a horror canon. Right. And my friend Lawrence is a horror guy and he knows the whole genre backwards and forwards. And he got me to read this, uh, her book of short stories, things we lost in the fire. It's, it's phenomenal and terrifying at the same time. And the way he said it was, you know, usually literary horror just leaves me cold because it's not scary enough. And somehow she manages to be flowery and scary and terrifying all at the same time. <laughs> so you know what? It, it, it had a real effect on me. And if what we're looking for is an affective response, um, I, I won't say that it kept me up at night, but I had a lot of trouble waking up in the morning. So <laughs> it's, it's that kind of horror where it seeps into your bones. You're like, how am I going to drive to work after thinking about this? Right. So I would, I would recommend it. Go, going back to the, yeah. the original list. Um, do you think that Bloom kind of fetishized about Shakespeare too much? There's no way that any serious person who's putting together a canon of whether it's uh, world literature, Western literature, English literature is not going to include the Bard. But he did right. write about Shakespeare an awful lot, didn't he? Yeah. Well, okay. The, there's His argument is a little bit different than just great man Shakespeare. And, and I, I kind of see his point. All right, there are two things that make Shakespeare special. It's not his plots. Um, it's his range of reference, like the range of trope, like the kinds of metaphors and similes. He had, he worked with a troupe that was, that was drawn from all quarters. So we, we know for a fact that he wrote for different people and different actors probably influenced the scripts, 
right? So it's not just writing in isolation, great man alone. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, the range of reference is, is extraordinary. I mean, it really is a much wider range of trope than any other writer in the 17th century. And 17th century English drama is just kind of like an embarrassment of riches. Uh, if anybody has any questions about that, I can get into that. That's one thing that Shakespeare did. So his language is a lot more intense, florid, and the range of references wider. The other thing that he did, he took one of Marlowe's innovations, which is the development of depth, and really expanded it. Marlowe has these characters who suggest that there's psychological depth to them. And Shakespeare took that idea and really ran with it. And so he creates these characters that suddenly seem as if they have a whole life before they even set foot on the stage. Um, it's a kind of illusion that he, he really works. And I think that was the innovation. Um, Marlowe was working at it, but if you look to previous literatures, a lot of times the characters can seem very, very flat, especially in drama. But like if okay, the Roman literature, yeah. Let, let's just uh, deal with that, All right? I, I don't know the works of Chaucer that well, but in right. the Canterbury Chat Tales, you're always kind of bumping into these, I thought, quite rounded characters, of which there obviously exactly. was a backstory to. Uh huh. But you and said that's that's why he says that Bloom actually says that Chaucer is the the backdrop to Shakespeare. Um, Marlowe innovated it on the stage and Chaucer's working at it. it sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I think you're right. <laughs> That's what Listen, I said. Anyone can interrupt me if they say I, I I'm right. I, as long I, as you I, say that I'm right, interrupt away. <laughs> No, you are right, and that, that I think is the corrective, and and that's sort of what Bloom wants to argue. He thinks the wife of Bath and um, the partner are are the beginnings of what eventually become Falstaff and Iago, which he thinks are 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 some of Shakespeare's greatest characters. Um, yeah, so so you're right. I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. Pragmatically, for the stage. Marlowe really sort of advances this kind of multiple motivation if you look at some of his characters in his later plays. Um, but you're right, Chaucer also, d like, really... I kind of agree with Bloom on this. I never thought I'd say this, but Wife of Bath really jumps off the page, as does the partner for all of his... Like, because of all his nihilism. There's something sort of fascinating about that. He thinks that that's the kind of significant difference in in English literature, and he thinks that other literatures respond in their own weird ways. He thinks something similar goes on in Don Quixote. That's a work that I've loved since I was seventeen years old, but for different reasons. <laughs> but um, yeah, he he thinks that there are these moments, but he thinks that Shakespeare is a big deal because Shakespeare seems to be this primary moment in Western literature that really sort of takes that and develops it. Um, I don't know if he's right. I, I, I honestly, that seems like an overstated case to me. But I, I do think there might be, you know, something to it somewhere. Did that sort of answer your question as to why he's so obsessed with Shakespeare? I, I just remember you saying that I was right. <laughs> That's what I remember. <laughs> I, I think that's all that matters at this point. <laughs> um, what are you? What are you reading 
um, at the moment. And, and dare I say, can you, Claude, can you actually mm-hmm. read a Stephen King novel and, and be not only um, intellectually sated, but can you read a pretty relatively straight but well-constructed in terms of plot mm-hmm. novel and be entertained? Oh, yeah. Um, to a degree, I, I don't like Stephen King for my own reasons and, and I'm not trying to bash King, but, um, when, uh, <laughs> like I said, when I was doing this horror canon with my friend Lawrence, he got me to read some Clive Barker, which aside from the gore is actually really well written. And so I kind of got into it. And then, um, there were some other pulpy things that he recommended that were really affecting. Yeah. Just because... All right, it's sort of like this. Isn't pulp a pejorative, though? You said there's no, I mean, this is pulpy things. No, this is I, literally I, like old pulp magazines. Okay, all right. No, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not using that as a pejorative term. These were some of the, like, um, Lovecraft and some of his contemporaries. Um, Lovecraft kind of leaves me cold. I, I can't get over the, the eugenics stuff. But um, one of his contemporaries, Clark Ashton Smith, w- was just this bizarre writer who kind of draws you in with these strange, horrific worlds that he constructs. And there were a couple of other uh, writers from the pulp set that he recommended that um, really, they, they were effective in their own, own way. Okay, look, just because, you know, you, you really admire something like um, like uh, Tree of Life, right, and Terrence Malick, doesn't mean you can't also watch, um, you know, the the latest episode of... Oh, shit, now I'm blanking. I, I, I have two kids and I don't have time for TV or movies. Doesn't mean you can't, you know, really watch and enjoy something like, um, you know, a, a recent Star Wars film or something like that. Does that make sense? Just because one thing strikes you doesn't mean that another thing won't strike you in a different way. You know what I think you should do? What's right? that? I'm just jumping in here, Claude. Right. You should put together pop- the popular canon. So so you strip away the, the heavyweight intellectuals, you know, the weighty tomes, yeah, and yeah, yeah. this person, you know, helped not only um, uh, write some good stuff, they also, you know, affected the language, you know, the way oh, that yeah. we speak, you know, so you knock out your Shakespeare's. It'd be quite interesting to have a, an intellectual like yourself, somebody who's deep in the mire of uh, literature to go, here is the last 25 years, popular canon, world canon. That would be re- really quite interesting. Well, I'm I'm always fascinated. It's something that, I, that I've thought about. It's something that I'm always thinking about. There are all, all these kinds of works that, you know, you walk into a bookstore <clears throat> and they're prominently displayed. And they've been prominently displayed since I was a youth and they're prominently displayed now. And you're sort of like, who, one, who is still reading that? And when I read it as a kid, my question was, why is this popular? Like, all right, there's, there's um, always some kind of weird vogue for like Kerouac and Burroughs and the Beats. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Ayn Rand is still around. I don't know why. Have you ever tried to read Rand? 
<laughs> it's it's not fun. I, there's some things that I think, it, or, but, or like Tolkien, or like but, Tolkien, right? But isn't Rand fundamentally about the philosophy as opposed to the writing? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I, I think that's it. And it's sort of like, you know, if that's the case, just give me the philosophy. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know, but the, the, it's, it's things like that. They're popular works that are sort of still around. And I think they also deserve acknowledgements. Uh, they deserve analysis just because they are still around. And that's where I think something like cultural studies can really make, um, make an impact as an academic, uh, subject, right? Uh, you, uh, Claude. Right. I love the fact that Oh, you're talking about I a said, podcast. <laughs> no, 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 not, not at all. Not at all. I was just saying that it'd be a, a great essay. But I love the way that I says popular. In my head, I am thinking of Tolkien. I am yeah. thinking of, you know, people like uh, Stephen King. And you went to Ayn Rand. Oh, because it's, well, one, I'm, I, I don't know if you know about the political mess we're sort of dealing with in America at the moment. But two, um, it, it is like you walk into any bookstore and it's been like this at least since I've been alive. And in maybe this is an American thing. I, I, I hope it's not popular elsewhere. Um, but it's always the same kind of bookshelf. And, and now that I'm discussing it, it, it seems like this is the bookshelf for like 16 year olds who want to appear literate in some way, shape or form or, or, you know, 40 somethings who are still 16 at heart. Um, there's, there's this set of, I guess, iconoclastic works which i suppose are always sort of a draw but you're right tolkien that's another one like why has tolkien persisted i i think it's because he invented a world honestly mm. I, like he really successfully invented that whole world maybe he invented too much of it um i still have a friend who swears by the silmarillion but you know you get you get the idea um, but I, I i think that that's a compelling question why are these things popular you know, why do they persist? And I think that's that's really um, worthy of analysis. So we talked a lot about the canon. Mm-hmm. We've hardly talked about the podcast. When mm-hmm. did you start it? Who did you do it with? Um, do you see an end in sight anytime soon? What is your release uh, schedule? Go. All right. We're all over the place. It originally started because I did have this question about, you know, I, I was mired in academia. I was mired in the, the professional aspects of these. And I really wanted to get back and look at things that, you know, I thought were interesting and, and that hit me in some way, shape or form. The original version of this was just to interview a wide different, like, like several different people about their interest in X, Y, or Z author. But that just kind of fell apart. The one conversation uh, I had some really good conversations with friends of mine, but I'm no editor. And so it got to a point where I was like, okay, I've got these different pieces of conversations. I have no idea how to put this together. The one that really stuck, uh, that, that took off, like we went on for, for two hours was Don Quixote with Daniel. The, the, the first thing we did was Don Quixote. Uh, cause I knew Daniel from social media. Um, he also had a podcast that he was doing at the time. And when everything fizzled out, you know, I thought, well, at least I got some good conversations out of it. But then a friend of mine was in town who's a radio guy 
who does his own podcast and said, oh, hey, if all you need is someone to stitch it together, I'll do that. I'll throw some music on and I'll throw it up wherever you want it. Um, I got in touch with Daniel and said, how about you and me just co-host it? And he said, yeah, that sounds great because I had a great time talking to you. And so we just started out from there. We started in 2016, um, at the end of 2016, right after my first son was born, we did Dante and no, we did Chaucer and then we did Dante. We did Dante sort of like we did Inferno, um, in November of 2016. So that gives you an idea of where my mind was at. And, you know, the original idea is to release it monthly. Sometimes we do bi-monthly. Honestly, though, with some of the works that we do, it can stretch out to over two months. Um, but we keep trying to get it as soon as possible. I think the issue is, you know, a lot of times we're reading, you know, 800, 900 page novels or this, that, and the other. I mean, when we did Montaigne, we did the whole of Montaigne's essays, so sometimes the the length and and depth of the works requires a little bit more time, but usually within a month or two months we we have something out. <laughs> um, I don't see it ending unless we're dead, because uh, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. I mean, it's more than anyone can do in a lifetime, and I think Daniel has has the idea when this stops being fun, then we just stop doing it. But I just love talking to the guy. So, uh, you know, unless something horrible happens to me, I, I think I'm just going to be doing this until I'm in the grave. Uh, scale of one to 10, you enjoyed talking to me today? Yeah, 10. No, I really enjoy <laughs> talking to you right <laughs> We don't get a chance to chat a lot, but every time I do, you're, you're a fun guy to talk to, so... Listen, uh, Claude Myron Guza, uh, the, it's been utterly fun, riveting and interesting to talk to you as well, sir. So the podcast is called The Cannonball. Uh, I yeah. believe people can get it from all good uh, podcatchers, can't they? So uh, it's kind of out there. Yeah, it's, it's you know, if you want to find it, you can find it. Um, C-A-N-O-N-B-A-L-L. It's a dumb pun that my friend Tommy made up. And, um, you know, it's, it's a little loose. It's a little rambly. Uh, I guess if you listen to me now, you get an idea of how loose and rambly it can be. But if you're curious about books that, you know, you never read or were supposed to read and never did, and you want kind of like a light fun take on them, yeah, hit us up hit them up it's called the cannonball it, it, it's an awesome podcast it's harold bloom's uh supposed canon of uh the best bits of, of western literature which he, he kind of put it together in the in the mid mid 90s yeah. um why don't you uh dive into the cannonball and uh give it a whirl and that's been us done for intelligent speech uh thank you for joining us in the audience if you listen to the podcast uh you're probably saying what audience um it's because i record these shows on a thing called clubhouse when i get uh great and interesting speakers um on the show and um why don't you uh sign up to clubhouse by downloading the app to your android or to your iphone and then find the intelligent speech club if you're in the audience why don't you hit up the little green icon uh, at the top of your phone join the club and then you'll know when i do these kind of interesting sometimes intimate sometimes uh uh thought provoking sometimes not but this is what definitely one has thought provoking thought provoking ones uh with somebody about a random topic which just takes my fancy so today we talked to claude myron guza um about the canon of western literature um was harold bloom right 
with what he said constituted what you had to read to be a well-rounded intellectual who can go out into the world and have white man's burden on his back. <laughs> Listen, mate, you've been a total star. Thank you for, for, for coming um, onto the podcast and a long may yours reign, sir. Oh, thank you so much. And did did enough of my irony about his project come through? I, oh. I'm extraordinarily skeptical. Listen, uh, I, I, I'm British. So we, we, we're steeped in irony. And so, right. so, so I, I, I did get that. I did get okay. that. Okay, fantastic. Um, I'm not a Nazi. <laughs> Listen, uh, you're, you're absolutely not. Um, there you go, folks. Uh, that's the end of another intelligent speech. I'm going to try, stress on the word try, uh, to really do these a little bit more regularly than I have done in the past. Uh, these are supposed to be um, kind of once a month. I, I've been somewhat um, hit and miss with that. But I'm going to try and nail these. I'm going to say once a week. I don't see why I kind of have a nice little natter as we say in England with somebody once a week about a topic which um, deserves discourse. So there you go. That's intelligence piece. Hit me up, join the club. Um, why don't you follow Claude? Um, so it will, you know, force him to remain on the app and not just be here just for this one interview. <laughs> and then also listen to his podcast because it's a lot of fun. Take care, mate. Thanks, man. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.